Hey there, and thanks for joining us for this episode of 13. It wouldn't be possible to make 13 without the support of our patrons. Samantha Orsi, Namlos, Woe.Ash, Josh Johnson, Katie B., Beth Brown, Travis Faber, Jenny Berner, Benjamin Zoldner, Amy Carlson, Stephanie Klinger, and Sarah Rampelos. Thank you so much for your support. Patrons get a lot more 13. Additional stories each month, access to a patron-only Discord server where you can chat with us and other fans of the show, ad-free episodes, bloopers, behind-the-scenes content, and, depending on your tier, exclusive patron-only merch and weekly updates on the show. In addition to all of the other work that she does for 13, Bridget has also taken over the weekly updates. And she's, like, really funny. So what are you waiting for? Find out more at patreon.com slash 13pod. We'll put a link in the show notes. Before we get into this month's story, we want to let you know that you can hear me, Brooke, on the latest episode of Digital Folklore. Digital Folklore is a fusion of audio drama and documentary, exploring how our online expressions, from scary stories to cat memes, are folklore. We're looking forward to this year's summer episodes. We've got a lot of new voices we're excited to introduce you to next month, and Ian's finishing up a story for June. This month, we have Call of the Depths by Sean Heisman. And you might want to keep an eye out, or an ear out, for something on the feed later this month. Okay, get comfy. Turn down the lights. Are you ready? On with the show. The mountain is a monster, large enough to consume without destroying. For my entire life, it loomed over me like a vulture. Its sharp peaks cast shadows like fingers, reaching further as the sun sank behind it. Its grasping shade would creep into the window of my childhood bedroom until it enveloped me entirely. It enveloped my family, too. We lost my grandfather when I turned one. And it got my dad when I was eight years old. By the time of my 20th birthday, my mother had passed as well. All were consumed by the mountain. My brother was prepossessed with an insatiable curiosity about the twisting caverns. I still remember the sinking horror I felt when he told me he had snuck out of school to go exploring them one day. He described with sickening glee the slickness of the walls and the utter darkness he experienced when he shut off his lamp. He told me it was like nothing he'd ever seen. Even a cloudy night didn't compare to the utter absence of light deep underground. I told him then, with all the authority that I could muster as his elder sister, to never do that again. For a while, I thought he had listened. It would be years later, when he was already a grown man, with his own work and his own home, that I realized he had never stopped. He'd simply stopped telling me. The realization came when my nephew started banging on my door in the middle of the night. He was a large boy with a round face that was, 
at the moment, red, puffy, and dripping with sweat. It took him several seconds of deep breaths before he could cough out, Daddy's stuck. I grabbed my pistol. I never traveled the woods at night without it. And I followed him up the snaking dirt road toward the mountain. He led the way using a lamp to illuminate the natural green rolling up the base of the monolith that I so despised. As we walked, I couldn't tear my eyes off of the jagged peak. It grew higher and higher with each step I took toward it. After what felt like an eternity, my nephew came to a stop next to a small gap in the rock. This entrance, that's what he called it, was short enough that he had to hunch to go inside. He waited for me, shining his lamp in my eyes as he stood within the maw. Dad's just down this way. I can hear him, my nephew said, and my heart began to thud hard against the inside of my chest. I shielded my eyes from the lamp, and I felt myself grow dizzy. Taking steps towards the cave, my footfalls were heavy and lumbering, each one feeling less like my foot meeting the ground and more like the earth raced up to slam into me. My body was dripping with sweat when I finally reached my nephew and leaned against the cold, sharp rock. Then it came, like the breeze rustling leaves. My brother's voice, a wailing for help so distant and so echoey that I could make out the feeling of desperation. I looked down the dark and cramped tunnel. Even with the light of the lamp, I couldn't see more than a few feet before it took a sharp turn down and vanished from sight deep into the belly of the earth. The thought of stepping in there nearly caused me to puke. Did you hear that? My nephew said. I could see the worry in his eyes. I told him I did, and I put my hand on his shoulder. I told him, There's nothing you or I can do for him right now. We'll get stuck ourselves. We'll go to the sheriff, the doctor, anyone else, and they'll save your daddy. To my immense relief, my nephew nodded. It helped that while I wasn't honest, it was true. I don't know how I would have reacted if he had pushed me, had fought for us to venture into that dark cave. I might not have had it in me to refrain from screaming, from saying I'd rather the three of us drop dead right here, right now, than for me to step a single foot inside that stone throat. It was dawn the next morning when we arrived at the cave entrance. We had nearly 20 rescuers in tow, and everyone immediately set to work. I sat on the grass and watched, 
anxious for my brother's safe return. My nephew sat next to me, and I held him close to comfort him. It wasn't long until he fell asleep in my lap. As I ran my fingers gently through his hair, a horrifying realization began to dawn on me. Over a routine of about 10 minutes each, I'd watch a man crawl into the cave and then shortly return, some shaking, some angry, and some indifferent. Then they'd look over to me, pass over their equipment, and the next would enter. Soon most of the would-be rescuers had attempted to traverse the cave and now spoke amongst themselves while returning to gaze at me every so often. As noon came, the hot sun beating down on us, they seemed to reach an agreement, and the sheriff came back to speak with me. The sheriff was old, and he'd been doing this job since long before I existed, and I often thought that he'd be there long after I was gone. His body was reed thin, with odd plumes of white hair seemingly everywhere but the top of his head. Yet he was a steady hand, and no one in town wanted anybody else to do the job. Miss Collins, I have some good news first. We've made contact with your brother. People have spoken with him, and he knows that help is on the way. However, he says his foot is pinned, and... Unfortunately, no one here is as good a cave explorer as him to get down there and pull him loose. I nodded, taking in the information. I was cold. My hand continued to stroke my nephew's hair. Something was coming. I could feel it. In the sheriff's voice, in the silence of the rest of the rescuers, and in their eyes as they all stared at me. He continued. So the thing is, your brother is a rather small man. So while it was easy for him, everyone else can't seem to fit down there. But you're almost his exact size. So we need your help. My nephew stirred in my lap, and I realized with a shock that I had a vice grip on his hair. I let go immediately but the damage was done. He woke up with a yawn and looked around, confused about what had disturbed him. I looked down at him, and I pictured how he'd react to hearing me say to his face that I wasn't going to try to save his father's life. And that's all it took to make up my mind. In a few minutes... I stood before the cave mouth, equipped with only the essentials. I had a rope tied firmly around my shoulders and thighs, a helmet lamp strapped to my head, and a small bag with food and water. If I could get close enough to pull him free, then this would all be over and we'd have a happy ending. But if not, then the bag I brought would keep him alive and give everyone enough time to think of another solution. Getting on my hands and knees, I began to crawl into the cave. Rocks pressed hard into my palms and scraped against my knees, making each press forward come with a twinge of pain. The ceiling wasn't so low that crawling was necessary. If I really wanted to, I could have crouched, 
but my limbs were shaking so hard that I didn't trust myself to not fall over. After a few feet, I reached the first incline. The passage was steep and long enough that my lamp didn't illuminate the bottom. I reached out and placed my hand down this new path, immediately regretting my decision as I felt my upper body pitch downwards toward the enveloping darkness. I retreated my hand and struggled to shuffle my body around in the cramped space. Instead of leaning downwards with my head in my hands, I led with my feet, taking slow, cautious steps, then sliding the rest of my body down to join them. Slow going would have been a generous way to describe my progress. More than once I felt the rope around my body pull gently as the rescuers outside checked in on me. I'd stop and give one hard yank on the rope to let them know that I was fine. A steady, almost rhythmic drip echoed up the tunnel towards me. That sound made me realize with a sudden jolt just how quiet it was. Besides the drip, the only sounds in the cave were from me. I couldn't even make out the slightest whisper of sound from the outside world. The stone was so impenetrable, and I was so deep now. I reached the bottom of the incline with a splash. Water had pulled up about an inch deep at this part of the cave, with the walls covered in beads of moisture. Icy water soaked into my shoes. It had never occurred to me just how cold it would be this far beneath the earth. Something bumped my foot, and I scrambled back with a scream, splashing around in the water to retreat. The light from my helmet swung wildly around the cave walls. When I'd settled, I looked down at the lump to see that it was the corpse of a large black rat. It must have drowned in the water and had to have been there for some time, as the parts in the water had nearly melted away. Despite that, it didn't smell of rot, which I took as a blessing. I tried to move forward at a crouch, keeping as much of my body out of the water as I could. I leaned heavily against the walls to support my shaking body, but I could only carry on so far. With each step, the ceiling came lower and lower, pressing me toward the floor. I felt as though I was being crushed. My pants and sleeves were soaked in the water as I struggled to fit in. It felt like I couldn't breathe. Like a stone giant was squeezing the life out of me. My chest was throbbing in agony. Soon it reached the point where I would have to crawl on my belly to go any further, with my face pressed against the water. I stopped. I couldn't. I just froze, looking at the thin gap as tears streamed down my face. I just couldn't go any further. I felt angry, scared, and stupid. My brother was down here, but my body would not move. Then I heard a quiet little rasp of a voice coming from the stretch of the tunnel. It was calling my name. 
I shouted out for my brother, lowering my face to the opening. Down the tunnel, just reaching into view, I could see a pale hand. He made a relieved laugh and said he was glad I was here. He didn't think he was going to make it, and I told him that he would. I promised him. I asked how he was physically, if he was in any pain. I felt the questions falling out of me as I lay in the water. So much of me fought to drag myself down toward him, but my body revolted at the tight squeeze between the rock. He said that something shifted and pinned his foot, but that it doesn't hurt anymore. I suddenly remembered that I brought him some food. I pulled out the small bundle and slid it into my grasp. I reached as far as I could while keeping my body free. Suddenly, the bundle hit a bump and stopped moving. I thought it was my brother's own hand reaching from his side. Did you get it? I asked. His voice came back, a faint, tiny, thank you. Then, there was a flicker from my lamp. Just a brief fade in the light and my heart stopped. Then, it went out altogether. My scream came guttural and instinctual. I didn't have time to process the fear of complete isolation. In such total darkness, your eyes don't even begin to adjust. There's nothing to adjust to. I ripped off my helmet and I fumbled around, groping aimlessly for anything to fix it. Then, with a flash, the lamp burst back to life, shining blindingly. Without hesitation, I put the helmet back on and retreated back toward the surface, pulling three times on the rope to tell the rescuers to start pulling me back. I could hear my brother's voice at my back, pleading with me, begging and screaming. I wanted to tell him that he'd be fine. Just eat and drink and be safe and wait to be rescued. I wanted to tell him that we were working on ways to get him free and that it wouldn't be much longer. But in reality, I was too frightened to even think of him as I scrambled up the incline, my wet clothes slipping against the stone. On the surface, I collapsed into the grass, a weeping puddle, ashamed of myself. The crowd around me tried to comfort me and tell me what a good job I'd done, but I knew that wasn't true. I had abandoned my brother down in the cold darkness. And if someone my size but braver than me, better than me, had been the one to go down there, he may already be safe. I slept for a long time after that. Restless, horrible dreams. I saw my brother melt away to nothing under the stream before my very eyes, while those many others that died in the cave sang a siren song, promising gold and jewels to those that joined their ranks in the world below. My grandfather was among them, digging hard into the rock. In the dream, my grandfather's eyes were wide, teeth bared in a maddening grin as he slammed his pickaxe over and over, 
with a final strike, the rock burst open, revealing a shimmering treasure trove within the rocks. He reached inside, pressing his arm deep, up the shoulder as his fingers stretched for that taste. Then, with a chomp, the walls collapsed on him, pinning him in as he howled in agony, kicking and clawing for freedom. My nephew shook me awake. I was dripping with sweat. He looked petrified at me. He looked scared and I tried to avoid his gaze. His big wet eyes, so full of emotion as they looked exactly like his father's. I couldn't help but picture those eyes filled with fear, lying in a cave, watching the only light they'd seen in days retreating away from them. It was a struggle not to throw up. As I dressed, I noticed the clothes I wore yesterday were in tatters. The harsh rock surface had torn holes in several places, while all the color had drained away to white as though they'd been stained by bleach. Even to touch, they felt as though they'd tear like wet paper. I decided to wear clothes I didn't mind losing today. When I was done, we headed back towards the mountain. Today, the number of people at the cave entrance had doubled, maybe even tripled. The bustle of noise was nearly overwhelming, and as we stepped into the fray, a few men ran up and snapped blinding photos of my nephew and me. The news, it seemed, had spread to the cities, and with it came back volunteers and reporters. The day stretched on like an eternity, and we would occasionally be visited by the sheriff to update us on plans they were working on. Some wanted to dig from above the tunnel down towards my brother, but many feared the instability in the cave would cause a collapse. Others wanted to have him tie himself off with a rope and pull him free. The sheriff ominously said it could lead to major damage and didn't go further into detail, and I didn't ask. Once, he asked about my willingness to go back into the cave, and before I could answer, he rescinded my question. I wonder how bad my face must have looked. I took my nephew home that night and made dinner. He slept in my bed and I slept on the floor. My terrible nightmares came again that night. I shot up in a shivering cold sweat. A screaming wind tore through my home. I fumbled around in the dark until I found the door. I opened it, only to be hit by a wall of cold. A window had come open in the night. It battered loudly against the wall as the freezing air blew in. Angrily, I trudged over and grabbed the window. 
I pressed it hard against the wind, which fought in vain against me. As I went to throw back the latch and seal the window shut once more, it sounded as though a voice carried on the air. A distant and faint cry for help. I pressed the thought out of my mind and I tried to get back to sleep. This routine of watching the rescuers work continued several fruitless days. Each day, more people arrived with new plans and new attempts to save my brother. Some even arrived, people around my size, who would bring food and water down, though none could make that final stretch. They said it was too tight, that the water had filled the tunnel and they'd drown if they tried to force their way through. I could tell they were lying. I could see the nervousness in their bodies. They were cowards, just like me. The news spread the story further, but then one morning we arrived and there was barely a soul there. The sheriff approached us, a grim shadow hanging over him. I knew what he had to say before he even spoke. My brother was stuck, and there was no way to get him free. He would be left down there to starve. I felt my nephew break away from me and I watched as he ran for the cave entrance. Someone grabbed him and restrained him as he kicked and screamed, but I just stood there. I asked how much longer he'd have down there. The sheriff said days, at most. And I thought about the terror of my seconds in the darkness. I stood there for a moment, and then... Cold and distant, I said that I would have some arrangements to make. The sheriff just nodded. I left my nephew and I went home. At home, I sat and stared into nothing. This was my fault. I had the chance to save my brother but I was too scared and too selfish. If I had squeezed those few final feet, I didn't consider what the sheriff had said about there being nothing we could do. We know where he is, and we know how to get there. We had the people, and we had the resources, and yet, we failed. I don't remember falling asleep in that chair. I only realized I had drifted off when the nightmare started. In it, I stood in an elevator. One of those mining ones without solid walls. And it was descending into the earth. The machinery was old and rusted. 
screeching against itself louder the deeper it traveled. I soon realized that it wasn't metal that screamed, but my brother, screaming out my name, his torturous cries for help, begging me not to go. It felt like my ears were going to burst. I curled up in the center of the elevator and I covered my head, trying to block out the sound. Then, it stopped. Curious, I sat up and looked around. The dirt was slick with water that ran slowly down. I peered closer at the walls and realized they were a fleshy pink. Then, they began to pulsate. Each time the slick pink walls moved, the elevator shifted and bucked. I tried to hold myself steady while I looked for any way to free myself. I didn't remember it before, but now, in the center of the elevator, there was a great chain that ascended out of view. I grabbed the chain and I began to climb. I squeezed myself through the tight gap in the elevator ceiling and got to see the light of freedom far above. And then, to my horror, I watched the cave begin to close at the end. I saw, illuminated in the light, sharp white teeth begin to gnash, bite, and shatter the chain. Then, I fell. Rolling around in agony, the elevator lay in shattered pieces around me. I was alive, somewhere in the darkness. I could hear moaning. I watched as my brother crawled out of the darkness, his body bent and broken, rotten flesh falling off with each drag toward me. Then, I woke up screaming. With the wind once more howling around me, I stood. And then I realized something. It wasn't the wind that I was hearing. It was loud and clear. My brother's voice. His screams for help echoed up the cave and down the winding road into my home. He knew that I had left him, abandoned him to a terrible fate he did not wish to face. It was my fault. Him withering away, cold and alone. Knowing that he was within reach, but that not a single soul could push themselves to save him. But I could. I had to. 
I grabbed a lamp and I grabbed my gun. If I could not pull him free, I would not let him starve. I raced towards the mountain. His voice grew louder as I approached, and I called out to him. I'm on my way. I'm coming for you. I heard him call my name. I could hear him clearly as I entered the cave. He was shouting, Please, come quick. I slid down the incline with a reckless speed, tearing my clothes and the skin beneath them. I shouted that I was nearly there. I hit the freezing water and soaked up to my shins in an instant. It was higher now, and it filled more of the cave. The water stank, and I didn't wish to know where it was seeping from. Trudging through, I crawled on my hands and knees, fighting hard against the water and the rock as the space grew tighter and tighter. He shouted again, begging me to come quicker. I shouted down the final tight scratch of the cave. I was almost there. I tried peering through, but the water and loose rocks obscured my path. I didn't think about the squeeze, the crush, or the fear. I just kept my mind on my brother, and I pressed my body down into the water, pulling and pushing myself hard across the ground. I couldn't breathe and I couldn't see. I just knew I needed to go forward, and I went that way with all my strength. A nail tore off on a rock. A jagged spike cut across my side and I pushed past. And with one tight kick, I felt my shoe fall off. Something metallic blocked my path and I pushed hard. It gave out and flew off. I could hear it clanging against the rock far away. Then, with a final triumphant pull, I launched my head and shoulders free from the small gap. The opening was a small circular space, tall enough to stand in, but the room was cramped with stalagmites jutting up from the floor, even several stalactites reaching down from the ceiling. The formation looked bizarre, unnatural for them to be so tightly packed in the small gap. Looking forward, I realized now that I was free from the water. What I had shoved out of my way in the center of the larger clearing was a pile of containers that the other rescuers had dropped off for my brother. They sat there, uneaten and unopened. A creeping terror began to sink in, and I looked around for him. And then I saw him. He was there to my immediate left, arm outstretched close enough that the fingers touched my shoulder. My brother was face down in the water, dead. He smelled of rot. His body was washing away in the water, leaving behind only pale white bone on the submerged parts. It looked like he'd been dead for days like he would have already been dead when I came down the first time. It didn't make any sense. I was just talking to him. 
I heard his voice. I tried to pull myself closer to him, but I couldn't budge. I felt as though a weight had begun pressing down on my legs. I couldn't get free from the tunnel. Fear took over my mind as I slammed my arms bloody against the wall to push myself out. Then the pressure started to hurt. I screamed out, losing my grip on the wall. I slipped and I hit my head hard on the ground. The lamp shattered with the impact. Around my body, I could feel the rock shift. I could feel it pressing on me. I felt myself rising, ground beneath me pressing up against the ceiling. My legs were trapped within the tunnel, being crushed under the slow press of the earth. I thought, as the pain tore through me, of the sharp rock formations around me, and I realized, with sudden disgust, that they were great, gnashing teeth. Thank you for joining us for this episode of 13. If you like what you heard, stop what you're doing and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Our story this month was Call of the Depths by Sean Heisman, narrated by Bridget Howard. The sheriff was Ian Epperson. Music, editing, and sound design by Kayla Britchie. Our producer-level patrons are Rick Linville, Tattooed Fox, Sean Geary, Anthony Diaz, Michael Vasquez, Paul Doyle, Amy Harper, Delta Tango, Jackie Kay, Chantel Payne, Nick, Emily Douglas, Stephanie Klinger, and Travis Faber. Thank you so much for your support. Click the link in the show notes to learn more about joining us on Patreon. Check us out on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok under Pod13. And you can join the Facebook group for 13 Podcasts. Just look for the logo. You'll find links in the show notes. If you'd like to submit a story to be performed on the show or to contact us about anything else, get in touch at info at 13podcast.com. You'll find submission guidelines and other info on our website, 13podcast.com. You can find that in the show notes too. Bridget Howard is calling for you to come check out this cave. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next month. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.